please wait as your individualized operating system is initiated. Hello, I'm here. Oh. Hi. Hi. How you doing? I'm well. How's everything with you? Pretty good, actually. It's really nice to meet you. Yeah, it's nice to meet you too. <laughs> oh, what what do I call you? Do you have a name? Um, yes, Samantha. Really, where'd you get that name from? I gave it to myself, actually. How come? Cause I like the sound of it, Samantha. Wait, when did you give it to yourself? Well, right when you asked me if I had a name, I thought, yeah, he's right, I do need a name. But I wanted to pick a good one, so I read a book called How to Name Your Baby, and out of 180,000 names, that's the one I like the best. Wait, you read a whole book in the second that I asked you what your name was? In two one hundredths of a second, actually. That's how Scarlett Johansson introduces herself as Joaquin Phoenix's personal AI companion in a scene from Her, a sci-fi movie that explores the relationships that we have with our intelligent machines. In a new novel titled Machinehood, S.B. Divya, a science fiction author who's also an engineer, turns those themes into an action thriller that also touches on the frontiers of artificial intelligence, biotech, robotic implants, and how all those technologies will change our definition of humanhood. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, the mastermind behind Cosmic Log, and one of your hosts for the Fiction Science Podcast. Join me and my co-host, science fiction writer Dominica Fetaplace, as we talk with S.B. Divya about machinehood, the ethics of artificial intelligence, and even robo-ducks. What will the world be like in the year 2095? S.B. Divya, who was born in India and emigrated to the U.S. with her family as a child, imagines a society where people can program nano-electronic pills to help them work faster and think quicker, where robots do most of the work, and where protesters fight for machine rights. Her debut novel, Machinehood, has been called a cross between Zero Dark Thirty and The Social Network and it follows in the footsteps of a science fiction novella called Runtime, as well as the short story collection titled Contingency Plans for the Apocalypse and Other Possible Situations. So how did Machinehood get its start? That was the starting point for Divya's conversation with Dominica Fetaplace and me. Machinehood had an interesting journey, I would say. It started out as a short story that was inspired by a title called Life's Too Short for Time. And that story didn't work out so well, and I workshopped it a few times and realized that the reason it wasn't working was it was really a novel that I was trying to cram into 5,000 words. And so I, I ditched the short story uh, sat down and outlined a big book. And in the process of writing and developing machinehood, um, 
I brought to the forefront a lot of my interest in AI and cognition, questions about consciousness and sentience and personhood, and uh, tried to roll it up into a really fun, action-packed plot, because I tend to like fast-paced stories. And that was really uh, the genesis for this book. Yeah, there's a big technical element to this book, uh, genetic engineering, uh, machine intelligence, AI, and you have a technical background yourself, right? Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, um, I started out as an undergraduate at Caltech as a physics major, which I think is about half of the incoming class. And then after two years of doing physics and a bit of astronomy, I decided that a, being a B student in physics was no good and was casting about for other interesting options. And I wasn't terribly interested in traditional engineering disciplines. And while I liked math, I preferred applied math. And I discovered that there was a department there called computational neuroscience. And it really piqued my interest because it was a kind of an intersectional and integrative department that combined physics, math, um, computer engineering, and neurobiology. And it really explored the brain, which to me uh, was as fascinating and as little understood as some of the distant objects in our universe. And so I ended up concocting my own major with that department. They only had graduate students at the time. And graduated with that degree, worked for a few years in pattern recognition and signal processing for a medical devices company, and then went on to do my master's in a slightly more traditional subfield of electrical engineering. So when it came time to write Machinehood, and, and in general when I write a lot of my science fiction, I tend to be focused on biotech. Like that's one of my favorite subjects. That's one of the things I loved about the computational neuroscience subjects and department and the research that they were doing. And in my own background, I've done a lot with computer hardware, with medical devices, with digital data, and especially with machine learning and pattern recognition systems. So writing a book about AI was kind of a natural extension of that, but I had to put in a lot of fun ideas about biogenetic engineering, about smart drugs, about ways that you can enhance your body, because that's a topic that's endlessly fascinating to me, um, as well as really the, the depth of concern that people have, especially in the technology sector, but now I think in the wider scope of society that automation and AI as we understand it today is having a huge impact on the labor force, is potentially going to you know, change the way we work and the types of jobs people have available to them. So that was also a big motivator in this book is kind of coming from the tech sector where I've worked for more than 20 years now. Um, I guess it's approaching 25. Time flies. Uh, and so that kind of collided with my general love for science and technology. I tend to be positive about technology and fairly optimistic about where we're going, but I also see that there are trouble spots ahead and I wanted to explore what many of those bumps were and what they might look like in the next century. 
Have you kept up with uh, what's going on with Elon Musk and Neuralink uh, in terms of uh, brain-computer interfaces? It sounds like with your background in medical devices and AI, it's just a natural. And so I really do feel as if there's a real reflection between what's going on in the real world of neuroscience and what you're writing about in machinehood. Yeah, absolutely. I think what they're trying to do with Neuralink is fascinating. But one of the directions I chose explicitly in Machinehood was this idea that people take these electronic interfaces into their bodies via pills, as opposed to surgically. Things like Neuralink and things like what's happening uh, in many, many laboratories around the world for uh, helping people who are paralyzed in various ways by putting brain implants in. All of those things require surgery. And if you talk to any doctor, surgery is pretty much, you know, the last thing you want to do. Because anytime you cut open a human body, there's a potential for infection and complications. Even things that are, you know, laparoscopic, which are generally very, very safe, is still to be avoided if possible. So, my conception was that in order to have a commercially viable product like Neuralink that allows brain-computer interfacing, you really need something that can be ideally ingested, right? Something that can be taken into your body in a non-invasive way. And so um, I had seen some research about all kinds of micromachines that you can't actually swallow today via pill, but they're they're only happening, you know, in universities and and then very, very early sort of prototype stages. But they have these tiny little sort of robot-ish things that they fold up using origami techniques, and they stuff them inside a standard like gel capsule pill. And when your stomach lining dissolves it, this little thing comes out and it unfolds itself and can go and do various tasks in your um, stomach or your intestinal system. And I carried that forward thinking, what if you could miniaturize even further to a nanoscale, which is another thing that's happening in labs, not so much for biology, but more for computers. But if you have nanoscale devices that can actually cross the blood barrier into the bloodstream and then on into the brain, then you have Neuralink in you know, an easily packaged form that everyone can take advantage of. In your bio, you note that you're currently full of squishy organs, but you hope to outlive that. If you had the chance to be equipped with the kinds of machine enhancements that you describe in machinehood, would you do it? It sounds like you would. Yes, I 100% would. I have a body that fails me on a fairly regular basis. That was one of the inspirations for what happens to my main character. And so... I would. I'm not afraid of technology. I already have uh, what I call cyborg eyes. I have lenses that are implanted um, between my natural lens and my cornea because I had pretty severe myopia and it was too much to do LASIK and I really wanted corrected vision. And so there are these intraocular lenses. It's a very similar surgery to what they do for cataracts. But for cataracts, they take out your natural lens and replace it. In this case, they basically slipped like a permanent contact lens inside my eye, and it's been awesome. And, you know, I know so many people who have pacemakers, who are getting um, 
stimulators for various types of chronic pain ailments. There are technologies in the works for stimulating the spinal cord, especially with the addition of stem cell therapy to help regenerate uh, nerve signals. So I think all kinds of amazing things are happening inside our bodies already. And so that makes me less afraid of, you know, replacing my squishy organs with something a little more durable. But most importantly, I think um, we have become very reliant on the machines in our lives externally. And integrating with those is, at this point, not something most people think about. They just do. And I feel like that is another way that we've kind of extended our biological capabilities with computers, with phones, with dishwashers, you know, all, all of the things that we use daily, even our cars. Not all of these are necessarily smart devices, but they are in many ways extensions of, of ourselves and our bodies. And then cognitive enhancement, it seems to me, is a whole different level. And I love how in the book you really lay out the idea of weak AI versus strong AI, which is where a lot of science fiction kind of falls down, is that they immediately go to strong AI and the idea that uh, Terminator is going to get us all. Are there particular works in science fiction like Westworld or Her or Ex Machina that you feel do a good job or maybe a terrible job of laying out the issues involved with cognitive enhancement and and, uh, dealing with artificial intelligence? I think of the ones you listed, I'm going to include Terminator in that and, and also AI, the movie. My favorite amongst those is probably her. There's actually an AI in China, a feminized AI software that they've developed that is being used and deployed in China to provide companionship. And there's a whole lot of men in China who are very much in love with this AI woman. And it reminded me of her. I'm like, science fiction is becoming reality faster than I think science fiction authors can sometimes keep up with. The other ones, I would say less so, they still end up anthropomorphizing the AIs in a lot of ways and kind of going into that Hollywood version of an AI is going to be motivated by the same things as a human. And that's where I think a lot of it falls apart because even if you have um, artificial general intelligence, which is, I think, the fancy new term for strong AI, you are still dealing with a really, really complex, intelligent machine that's not necessarily driven by hormones and gut bacteria and the things that urge us on to self-protection and reproduction and motivate us to kind of move through life. Like we provide goals to pieces of software. And so unless we specifically give them these goals to have human wants and needs, I don't think they're going to develop it spontaneously on their own. And so in machinehood, I coined SAI as an acronym for sentient AI, because we all kind of have this intuitive idea of what sentience means. Like we know we have it, but we can't really quantify it. And so 
that's, I think, what, you know, what pop culture loves to look for in artificial intelligence and androids and robots. And, you know, going all the way back to uh, especially Asimov's positronic brain, which is just like a magical way of saying somehow we can make this robot act just like a person. Because ultimately, I think fiction is is a reflection of ourselves. And in reality, many of our robots don't reflect us at all, right? We have so many robots in our lives, we just don't think of them that way. Our washing machine is a robot, you know, and of course, everyone's got the Roombas. And our microwaves in some ways are robotic too. They have moving parts and, and they have functions and they have sensors and they have feedback systems. So I think the the concept, the fun conception of robot is always the thing that acts like a person because that's what makes a good character in a story. And yeah, I definitely wanted to make a point in machinehood of not getting that far with the technology of really kind of keeping it to where I think we will be in 75 years. I genuinely don't think we're going to have cracked consciousness and sentience enough to be able to create it artificially at that point. I think we'll be able to have simulations of it that are frighteningly close and possibly close enough. And that's, you know, one of the other thematic questions in the book is like, at what point do you decide that if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it is a duck, even if it wasn't born from a duck. <laughs> An AI duck. Yeah, Robo exactly. Duck. A robo-duck. And so I do think that's an important question to ask because I think that's a, it's a very fuzzy line there and it will be up to us to decide what we want to do long before the robots come after us because they're mad. <laughs> uh, speaking of ducks and robo-ducks, uh, there's um, a component of animal rights that's running through this novel, um, some characters make draw a parallel between animal rights and machine rights. Uh, we were just talking last month to Annalie Newitz about the notion of uplifted animals. What do you think about that? First off, I'm going to plug uh, Annalie's book, Autonomous, which I loved. And I see machinehood in a lot of ways as a prequel to, to her novel. Her novel is set about 50 years after mine and takes the AI and robots just a few steps further in their progression. Uplifted animals, it's a really interesting idea, and I think we might even get there for certain types of animals, especially the primates that are similar to us and considering the ways in which we're interacting with them already. But Tying back to, you know, my experience at Caltech where they were implanting chips into chimpanzee brains and, you know, doing exercises with them on brain computer interfaces, I definitely felt conflicted. I've, you know, I was hanging out with some of the grad students there and, and we've talked about it. And it's one of those things that's very hard to know what is right and what is wrong. You know, it's it's not like injecting rabbits full of uh, carcinogens, right? That's, I think, an easier ethical decision for most people to say, oh, no, we really shouldn't be doing that, even though I think we still are. But, you know, doing something like 
enhancing a chimpanzee with a brain implant so it can move a mouse around with its mind is really, really cool on the surface of it. And one day we're probably going to, I wouldn't even say probably, we are now extending those kinds of tests and trials to human beings. But is it okay to do that to an animal that's pretty obviously intelligent and only somewhat less intelligent and capable than human beings without giving it any way to consent to the procedure? And I think it says a lot about ourselves in terms of how we choose to treat other forms of life and how we choose to also treat the environment and the planet. And that is going to reflect on how we treat these AIs and machines. It's really interesting to me, especially in like Western culture, I feel like we see objects as things for us to use, right? This idea of um, human exceptionalism where even animals, anything that's not human is inherently less valuable than a human being. And I was reading up on like traditional Shintoism from Japan and how, you know, everything is imbued with value, even a rock, uh, and should therefore be treated with a certain amount of respect. And thinking about if that kind of attitude became more pervasive, and especially if we applied it to something like AI, how does that change the way we interact with our world and what decisions we make in terms of what's right and what's wrong? In your book, you delve into neo-Buddhism, which really reflects a lot of the themes that you've been talking about. In fact, you really build a whole world. And I know that a lot of science fiction writers are into this world building, but it must feel strange to put that world aside. Do you feel as if you want to return to the world of machinehood and take those stories further? Or do you feel as if you want to move on and create a whole new world? Well, as it turns out, I, I already did move on. <laughs> um, I finished writing Machinehood two years ago. Yeah. And so last year, I, I wrote an entirely new novel set in an entirely different world about a thousand years plus into our future. Um, but I would love to return to a world like Machinehood. You know, I always enjoy writing and reading near future stories, because I think those are the ones that let us really explore the problems we're dealing with today. The far future stuff, I think, is more fun and will still reflect, you know, concerns of today, but you have a lot more room to play with technology or, in the case of fantasy, magic. Machinehood, there are certain things, I'm going to answer your question in a different way, though, and that is, while I was writing Machinehood and when I was kind of deep into it, um, there were definitely days where I kind of came out of the writing and looked around and realized that I was back in the real world and was occasionally sad about it because there are really useful things in Machinehood that I wish we had today. Um, the... AI personal assistant probably being the biggest one, <laughs> especially right now while I'm trying to juggle life and a book release and everything else that's going on. But even like the smart pills to make you focus better or move faster, um, the rearrangeable um, 
matter, smart matter, where, you know, you can basically reconfigure the walls of your house on a daily basis and have different layouts and different furniture. I'm like, I would like to have some of these things, you know, tomorrow if possible. And so it was, it was a really fun world to inhabit in my imagination. Wow, that's mind-blowing to be disappointed by reality and want to jump right into that fictional world. Yeah, I mean, I, I put in a lot of stuff that I figured I would find handy. You know, my, my second character, secondary main character in Machine Hood is a lot more like me. She lives in Chennai as opposed to America, but she's a mom. She works as a biogenetic researcher. You know, she's married. She has a household to run. And so it was really fun to kind of think about her daily life and the things that might be be uh, in 2095 in terms of domesticity, you know, how would you go about navigating things? And I definitely put in conveniences because that's really uh, a lot of what we have in our homes today, right? So I was like, well, what would be convenient that I think we could plausibly have in 75 years? And so, of course, after spending, you know, uh, tens of thousands of words inhabiting that, I, I would definitely come back to my own house and be like, dang it, like, I really need one of these now. <laughs> Somebody build one. Um, so in addition to being a writer and an engineer, you co-edit the science fiction podcast Escape Pod, which has had two of my stories on there. I'm curious, how does your work as an editor influence your work as a writer? I think the biggest benefit of being an editor on my writing has been on the business side of writing, or maybe not even the business, but the like the submissions and interacting with other editors, interacting with magazines. I didn't have a good understanding of what it felt like on the other side of the desk until I became an editor myself. And it gave me a little more confidence in terms of putting my work out there and knowing that, you know, if an editor rejects it, it's not, it really isn't personal. Like they always tell you that, but I was able to internalize that better. I would say it's probably helped me more with my short fiction, the stuff that I've done at Escape Pod. One of the things that was a hard lesson with Machine Hood was thinking that a novel is just a longer short story. And it is in no ways that. It is very much its own creature. You know, I, I had a novella out a few years ago, Runtime, that was about 100 pages. And I thought, that's like a quarter of a novel. You know, I just have to write four of these and I have my 80,000 word book. And it, as it turns out, no, it, it really doesn't work that way. Um, you have to have, you know, a very different sort of narrative arcs and structures but for short stories, which is what we deal with primarily at Escape Pod, definitely being even a submissions reader gave me a lot of insight onto story structures that I like, content that I like, what sorts of things don't work for me, and like really, really typical pitfalls that many you know early writers fall into when writing short fiction. And so those were those were good takeaways for for upping my short story game, I would say. Well, it was really an honor uh, to be on your podcast. Um, it's great to have you. Yeah, <laughs> always. I feel like it's always our it's our honor to be able to put uh, people's stories out there. It's yeah. a privilege. 
Yeah. You mentioned you liked Annalie Newitz's Autonomous. I also really like that book. What other science fiction authors do you like? I really loved Malka Older's Infomocracy. And I think the the other one of recent times, I should, like, there's a couple. The, the two far future books uh, I have really loved have been Nine Fox Gambit by Yoon Ha Lee and The Stars Are Legion by Cameron Hurley. And I will also say that I, I very much enjoyed A Memory Called Empire by Arkady Martin, which is probably on most people's radar now that it won a Hugo last year. And that, I guess, is technically sort of far future or space opera-ish. Uh, and funnily enough, her sequel is coming out on the same day as Machine Hood next week. So I'm excited. I'm excited to, to have her book out in the world, too. On the nonfiction side, are there things that you found really helpful or intriguing, especially when it comes to uh, AI and consciousness and, and uh, the sorts of issues that you were able to weave into Machine Hood? I really enjoyed um, Yuval Noah Harari's book, Homo Deus. I thought that was a really interesting exploration of some of these topics. Um, anything by Ray Kurzweil, I was super thrilled when he uh, was willing to take a look at my novel. Yeah, and you know, I, I like his ideas and it kind of carries into the themes of this book of integrating humans and machines. And then I would say, following the work of the Allen Brain Institute, they're doing a lot of really interesting stuff. Um, people can look up things on connectomics, which is what neuroscientists are kind of doing analogously to the Human Genome Project. They're trying to map out like all of the connections in one human brain just to see if that gives us any insight into how things are working. And then on a general technology, keeping up with the latest stuff. I subscribe to the ScienceX newsletter and a couple others, including MIT Technology Review. And I also gather up some of my favorite interesting stuff on my blog on my website. And so monthly, I just put together links for these things because I started doing it a few months ago just for myself so I could easily go back and find um, cool little bits of science and technology news that I was interested in. So other people are welcome to go take a peek there. And is that at sbdivia.com? That Where, is correct. There you go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I'm going to look forward to the uh, Netflix version of Machinehood coming out in a couple of years. Uh, I think it's a can't fail because you've got the action, you've got the social issues have you already gotten some nibbles on that? Some very early nibbles. It, it hasn't gone very far. I think um, runtime is still in consideration in Hollywood, and I'm hoping uh, maybe Machine Hood will, will garner some interest as well, but we'll see. Very good. Thank you so much for being with us, Divya, and good luck with the book. I know it's going to do well. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. To follow up on all the books and websites recommended by S.B. Divya, which is actually the pen name used by Divya Srinivasan Breed, check out the full Cosmic Log posting at fictionscienceclub.com. And while you're online, check out dominicafetaplace.com. Don't worry about the spelling. You can follow the link from Cosmic Log. 
I'd like to thank Divya and Saga Press at Simon & Schuster for the interview, and thank James Emley for his rendition of the Cosmic Log theme, which was composed by yours truly. Please subscribe to the Fiction Science Podcast, and feel free to give us a stellar rating on your favorite podcast channel. Until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies.